Our Lord, we do need you. We confess that we are all sinful people and that sin separates us from you. And we thank you that you are an all-sufficient Savior and that you love us so richly, even in our times of need, Lord. And Lord, now as we come to a topic that is a, a bit of a controversial topic, a challenging topic to deal with, Lord, I pray that you will be our teacher this morning through your spirit and through your word, Lord. We need you even during this time. And so we pray that you will be at work in our midst, helping us to know how to respond uh, to a topic that certainly can get people riled up pretty easily. So we pray for your guidance now in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as I've already referenced in that prayer, we are addressing a topic that is probably the most controversial topic I've ever looked at in a sermon. And it's the topic of homosexuality. And as I was putting this series together, I was telling a few people about some of the topics I was thinking about addressing. And when I mentioned I was thinking about addressing the topic of homosexuality, it raised some eyebrows. In fact, several people essentially said, why in the world are you doing that? It was the same type of response that you would probably get if you told someone that you're going to go swim in shark-infested waters. Or if you're going to go try to climb over a live electrical fence. It's that type of response that people hear and they're like, why do you want to do something like that? Why would you do that? That's so dangerous. Why would you even go there? But here's the thing. I am a person who's relatively cautious in my life. I don't really like taking risks all that much. And I generally don't like to rub people the wrong way. Yet, at the same time... We're in a series right now called Big Butts that is looking at the key objections and questions that people have about Christianity. And when you look at our American landscape and the culture's values and their ideals and their questions and their concerns, and especially in terms of how the culture views the church and views Christianity, there is probably no bigger single objection that people have to Christianity than this. But why are Christians so mean to homosexuals? Now, this is a huge topic, and I think it's a topic that pretty much everyone out there knows is an issue. And so if we have this metaphorical uh, big elephant hanging out in the room, we might as well address it head on in a very clear way, in a very humble way, and also in a biblical way. So that's what we're going to do together this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Then also you can put a bookmark over in Romans 1 because we'll go there a little bit later. Now, if you weren't here last week, um, I mentioned that this is a, a, a challenging topic. And um, for those of you with young children, if you aren't so sure you want your children to, um, to be exposed to this topic today, you certainly can have them go down to the nursery, even though we normally have the, the cutoff right around five years old. If you have children who are a few years older than that and you still would like them to be down there, that is certainly permissible uh, today. And um, because we want to look at this topic honestly and clearly, um, yeah, we're not going to do it in any sort of vulgar uh, way or graphic way, but we just want to examine what does the Bible have to say about this topic and how do we address this objection? It's a topic that um, is a multifaceted topic when we look at, at it from a cultural perspective. I want to just kind of spread uh, or kind of just uh, set the table for what we're going to be looking at today. And this homosexuality issue, when you look at it from a cultural perspective, we have to recognize it is very volatile. Think about it. If you want to start an argument at your workplace, simply ask, hey, what are your guys' thoughts on homosexuality? Odds are good it's going to start an argument pretty quickly because it's one of those topics that as soon as you mention it, it immediately sets people on edge 
may make some people get into a bit of a fighting stance because, you know what, people will, will definitely take very strong sides in this thing. Homosexuality has been at the core of the cultural war that has been a part of our country for a while, where you have conservative people on one side pulling in one direction, liberals on the other side pulling in the other direction, and homosexuality is one of those uh, key issues that tends to divide people. So it's very volatile. It's also a very complex issue. It's amazing how many different aspects of life this issue touches. It touches areas of politics, areas of education, Areas of the media, of ethics and morality. It affects how we view marriage and how we view gender. The medical field has input in this on the side of genetics and neurology and psychology. It tends to divide generations where oftentimes older generations are more anti-homosexual, younger generations just stereotyping, but still there's a general um, movement where younger generations are more pro-homosexual. And so you get the division among generations. There's pretty much no area of society that this topic doesn't touch in one way or another. I mean, even in the workplace, you have issues of workplace ethics. You have issues in sports regarding this. You have issues um, even in parenting or even in who should be qualified to adopt or who should be qualified to get insurance. It's an issue that is pervasive in all realms of life. And adding to the complexity is the fact that it's not simply two different categories. It's not like, okay, you're either homosexual or you're heterosexual, and those are the only two categories. There's so many other categories as well. That's why you may have heard the abbreviation LGBTQ for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, or questioning. People who are just wondering, I don't know what I am really. I'm just kind of seeking it out. It's confusing when you really get down to it. And we can't just bury our head in the sand and pretend like this isn't an issue because, like it or not, we're going to deal with it in this world. I think of how a couple of years ago I was sitting in my office and this person came into into my office and she introduced herself to me and she sat down on my couch and we began a discussion. And through the course of the discussion, it became very clear that the she was once a he But in in her mind, she was never really a he because she was always a she just trapped in a man's body. And so through a process of operations and hormone treatments, she, he became more of a she. The external appearance came to match what she um, apparently felt on the inside. And so she's wondering what in the world my thoughts are on that type of thing. What would you, how would you respond to that? I mean, it just shows these are complex issues, and we can't avoid them. Now, maybe you're not a pastor who's going to have someone plop down on your couch in your office asking about what you think of transgender type of stuff. But even still, you're probably going to deal with this, whether it's in your school or in your workplace, whether it is uh, just among some friends or even around your kitchen table. It's a live topic that is very complex in our culture. And adding to the complexity is how personal this topic is. It's very personal, partly because people's view of their sexuality and their gender is obviously very tied up in their identity. But it's also personal because of how it affects people who we know. I imagine that you could generate your own stories like this as well. And I would imagine that probably it wouldn't surprise me that even within the Freedom's congregation, there very well may be those people who are dealing with some sort of same-sex attraction. It's that common in today's culture. And so it's an issue that's very volatile, it's very complex, and it's very personal. 
But when we come to this issue, I think it's important that we deal with it head on and ask, okay, from a, from a biblical perspective, what does God have to say about this topic and how do we respond? So we're going to start now by turning to Scripture to see what God has to say about it. And then we'll turn to how do we respond when we come up against this issue in our own lives. So in the biblical perspective, we're going to start with Genesis 1 and 2. Because from the biblical perspective, we recognize God was the one who created us. And you think about, okay, you have automotive engineers. When they design a car, they design a car to function in a certain way. Computer engineers, when they design a computer, they design the computer to function in a certain way. In the same way, if there is a divine uh, engineer, God, who, who created and designed us as human beings, he probably created us to function in a certain way as well. So let's look in Genesis 1 and 2 to see how he did this. It's going to pick up in chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. It says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, as we're studying Scripture together this morning, we're going to look at six different key points that we need to understand if we want to have a biblical perspective on this topic. And the first key point is this, that God created male and female with complementary distinctions. Now, God certainly could have just created one gender. Then we wouldn't be talking about this issue today if there was only one gender. He certainly could have done that, but he chose not to. He chose to create humans as male and female, and he, compl- he made them with differences. If you have ever been in a dating relationship or if you've ever been married, you know that men are from Mars, women are from Venus. There are differences there, but they're complementary differences that are meant to go together. And one of the ways that we see this complementation between men and women is on the sexual side of things. God told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He's telling them to reproduce themselves. If you know anything about biology, you know that human reproduction requires a male and a female. There is something beautiful in the way that God designed males and females to literally fit together in a sexual sense for reproduction. And so we see even a little picture there of how God created male and female with complementary distinctions. Now, moving on uh, to over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 zooms in a little bit more to see the exact process that God used to create humanity. And he said in chapter 2, verse 18, after he created the first man, he said, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. I'll create a suitable helper for him. And the suitable helper that God created was a woman. And then when God brought this woman to Adam to introduce them to each other, here is what Adam said, verse 23 of Genesis 2. He's kind of saying, whoa, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So here we see a second key point that we need to understand, that God designed marriage to be between a male and a female. And this is a truth and a a pattern that is validated in the Old Testament law. When God gives very clear expectations for marriage, for who should be married, who should not be married, who should have sexual relations, who should not. And it's a pattern that even Jesus himself validates. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus himself mentioned how marriage is to be between a man and a woman. This is how God originally designed it. 
And we also see from this passage when it's referring to them becoming one flesh, we see that sex is a good thing. It's a good thing. Now, there are many people in our society who have this warped view of biblical understanding and Christianity, and they say, well, the Bible doesn't really like sex very much. That's what people in our society seem to think. Well, no, God was the one who invented sex. He was the one who made it beautiful and enjoyable. And so sex is a good thing. And in fact, one of the most erotic books ever written is right here in the Bible, the Song of Songs. And if I were to read that for us today and to explain the meaning of it, there would probably be many of us who would be blushing a little bit at what it says. So sex is a, really a good thing. And we see here in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 2 that this union between a man and a woman in marriage is not simply a union of two physical bodies, but is actually, in essence, a reunion. Because originally, there was one man. And the way that God created the woman was to take part of the man's body and to create the woman out of the man. So they originally one, then became two. And that's why Adam said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But now in marriage, the two become one again. So it's a reunion. And this is something that can only happen in a relationship between a man and a woman. So we see here the foundation for gender and the foundation for marriage. That God created male, male and female with complementary distinctions. That God designed marriage to be between a male and a female. And that sex is a good thing. But then if you know your biblical storyline at all, you know that Genesis 3 comes. That sin entered the picture. And then, then things got very messy. And so what this means for us is that as we look at the world around us, because our world is messed up by what is called the fall of humanity, when sin entered not only the human race, but sin also marred the entire creation, we have to understand that what we see around us is not necessarily the way that God designed it originally to be. Because sin messes things up. And now I want to turn our attention over to Romans chapter 1 to see Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describing this downward spiral of sin that we are caught in and how it affects our sexuality. This is a long passage. I'm going to pick up in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. It's long. We're only going to pick up the points from it that are most relevant to our topic today, but I want to read the whole thing to give us context. Paul says, beginning in verse 18, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women 
and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They, obey, they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So there is a lot here in this passage, but, but the main thing that we see here is that the world is caught in a downward spiral of sin. And one of the things that Paul talks about is how this downward spiral of sins, it blinds us, it darkens our understanding, so that even the way that we view things is distorted from the way that God's perspective is. And what Paul, I want to just point out what Paul's talking about here that's most relevant to our topic today He's pointing out that really the primary sin that humanity has committed is this sin of idolatry. Now, homosexuality oftentimes gets put up on this pedestal as a very heinous sin. But idolatry is at the root of every single sin that we have. That's why Paul talks multiple times in here about people exchanging uh, God in their minds for things that are created. That rather than worshiping the creator, we worship created things. And idolatry is when we worship anything other than God. Now you may think, oh, I don't worship anything else. Well, this idea of worshiping idols, an idol could be something that we put our sense of significance in or our meaning in or our sense of joy, our sense of satisfaction, our sense of security, our sense of identity. If we're doing that, doing, putting those things in anything besides God, that is very likely an idol for us. And the idols that we cherish in our hearts become very personal and near and dear to us. So if someone pushes on those things a little bit, we get really bent out of shape. And that helps us to identify what the idols are. Think about it. For some people, video games take on a very significant role in their lives. And if a person who essentially idolizes and worships their video games, if they are told that they have to go for a month without video games, odds are good they're not going to be happy at all. Because it points to an idol of their heart. Or say if I told you, okay, for the rest of this NFL season, the Packers are going to lose every single game. How would you feel? Probably for, for some people, actually many people around Wisconsin, this would be devastating. They would want someone's head. They would want someone in the upper, uh, upper management there of the Packers to lose their job. I mean, they would be incredibly upset. It would probably be, the state would probably be in a state of depression if they found out that the Packers are going to lose every single game for the rest of the season. One of the reasons why is that football can easily become an idol for us. I think back to when I was in college, I had a truck that I, I did practically worship and idolize. I never bowed down to it, but I did want it to be my, a source of my identity and significance. And I put a lot of money and effort into that truck. And I modified it, made it look different. And my first weekend I was in Minnesota for college, I got pulled over by a police officer. And he told me, you know that nice fancy sticker across the top of your windshield? That is illegal in the state. Those headlight covers? 
which I love those headlight covers because they, make, they helped make the entire truck black except for that white sticker across the top of the windshield. He said those headlight covers, they are illegal. I lost a lot of sleep over that. <laughs> you laugh. I was angry. I did not want, I mean, I was, I was almost in tears as I have the scraper out there a couple days later scraping that sticker off the top of the windshield so I could go show it to him at the police station. He'd put his finger on an idol. And that's what happens when we elevate things above the level that God designed them to be. We take them very, very personally. When someone pushes them, we get really bent out of shape. And what ends up happening when we put them up on that pedestal is that we distort them. They become open to perversions because we're trying to get something out of them that God never designed in the first place. Video games, they can be a source of enjoyment. Sports, that can be a source of enjoyment. A truck, that can be a great source of transportation and a way to serve others. But when we elevate those things, we distort them and we place value in them that they never should have had. Now, in our culture, one of the biggest idols is that of sexuality. On so many different levels, it's not something that's just unique to the 21st century. It's something that's been the case throughout human history ever since the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, that sexuality is put up on this pedestal And as we idolize sexuality, we distort it and it becomes open to perversions. And so Paul, because of the pervasiveness of this idol of sexuality that people have and the way it gets distorted, he uses homosexuality here in Romans 1 as an example. He says in verse 24, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So he's, God's basically saying, okay, you guys are persisting in your rebellion against me. Fine, if that's what you want to do, I'm going to let you go. You have the free will. You can choose to go in that direction. It won't be healthy. But God's saying, you know what? I'm going to hand you over and allow you to go in that direction if you'd like. Verses 26 and 27 talk about them going further in that direction. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. So what we see here is homosexuality is a distortion of God's design. It's a distortion. It's not how God originally designed it. Paul uses the term unnatural. It's unnatural because what is natural is how God originally created men and women to be in marriage with each other, to have sexual relations with each other. But now, because sexuality has been perverted and distorted, it has become unnatural in how people are living out in this homosexual type of relationship. Now, there would be people in our culture who would say, what? I mean, I've had the same sex attraction ever since I was a child. This is the way God made me. You can't say that, God, that this is outside of God's design. I would push back on that a little bit and say, you know what? God did not make us that way. It's not an indication. The same-sex attraction is not an indication of how God made us. It's an indication of the sin that distorts us. This is one of the reasons why, uh, to me, it doesn't worry me that much that people are seeking out a genetic foundation for homosexuality. Because some people are looking for this homosexual gene that they say predisposes people to same-sex attraction. If they can find that gene, that proves that homosexuality is just fine. To me, it doesn't really bother me one way or another whether they find a gene that points to that. I mean, they have found uh, genetics and biological factors that incline people towards alcoholism. 
But that doesn't make abuse of alcohol right. All that is, when you find this genetic or biological or, or family type of influence in these types of things, all that points to is the brokenness of our world, of how sin has corrupted pretty much everything. And so what I would point to, if people say, well, that's the way God designed me, I'd say, no, that's the way sin has corrupted our world and how that corruption works its way into our lives. Now, Paul closes out this passage just by listing a whole gamut of sins that, that we're all guilty of sin. That's really the case that Paul is making in, in Romans 1 through 3, is that we all are guilty of sin, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So none of us are off the hook here. And he closes with a very interesting statement that I think uh, is very appropriate for our society where people not only engage in these sins, but they approve of others who engage in them as well. So a question for us is this. Is there any hope for people who struggle with homosexuality? Is there any hope? Or are they just condemned? Well, I want to turn our attention now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul gives, it's a very provocative statement here. Uh, it starts off bad, turns really good at the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, picking up in verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what Paul is saying here is, you know what? With Christ, there is always hope. We may have ugly backgrounds. We all do. But with Christ, there is always hope. And we all come to Christ in the same way, through faith and repentance. And so what this means, that regardless of what someone's sin struggle is, we need to confess that to God. We need to repent of it. We need to turn back to him and put that sin struggle behind us. Now, it begs the question, can people with same-sex attraction actually change? That's a very complex question. Now, there certainly are accounts of people who have the same-sex attraction who experience major change where that temptation is no longer there for them. And then there can be miraculous deliverance from it. And there are uh, many accounts of this. But there are many other accounts of people who want to put that behind them but struggle to. I mean, think of it this way. Think of what it would be like to go up to a person who struggled with alcoholism for decades and say to them, hey, just stop drinking. No longer, don't be tempted by alcohol anymore. For some people, that can work. For most, it's going to be a lifelong struggle. Even if they're able to maintain sobriety for many, many years, that temptation towards alcohol will probably still be there. And so we have to recognize that it's, it's quite similar with, with same-sex attraction, that, that there can be change that takes place. And we have the promise here that, that Christ offers uh, a washing, a, cl- a spiritual cleansing, a new life, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, sanctification, and spiritual growth. But the odds are decent there may still be a struggle with temptation. I mean, it's that, it's that way with, with all of us, with all of our sins. I mean, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that automatically you stop lusting or you stop struggling with materialism or pride or gossip. Those are things that we are called to crucify and to put behind us. 
And those who are struggling with same-sex attraction are called to do the same thing. It's not a sin to be tempted towards same-sex attraction. It's not a sin. It's sin to be tempted to lust or to be materialistic. It's a sin to actually live that out. And so with Christ, there is always hope for new life. So the question for us, when we come to this topic and we deal with it personally in our own relationships or wherever, how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, first of all, I want to challenge all of us to know what we believe and why we believe it. I think it's this, this, this is the case in all areas of our faith. Know what we believe and why we believe it. One of the things, if you want to make someone really, really mad, just say to them, give them a generalized blanket statement without being able to back it up. Just say, you know, homosexuality is wrong. God said so and I believe it. If you say that and you aren't able to back that up at all, that's a recipe for just making people really angry. What I want to challenge us to is to know what we believe and why we believe it so that, that we can back it up with a reasoned um, argument or reasoned discussion because that will help gain respect. Now, there are a couple books that I'd like to recommend if you'd like to study more on this topic. One is called Washed and Waiting by Wesley Hill. And the other one is called Is God Anti-Gay from Sam Alberry. These are both books written to, from a Christian perspective, but they're both written by men who struggle with same-sex attraction. One of them is actually a pastor over in England. Both of them are highly recommended by, by strong evangelical leaders. I would highly recommend them. They, they force us to grapple with the deep issues of this topic and the complexities of them. Um, Sam Alberry's book is God Anti-Gay. It, it goes a little bit deeper than the other one and the biblical side of things. Uh, Wesley Hill's book, Washed and Waiting, is a little bit more raw in terms of the struggles and the temptations that he wrestles with. But they're both books that can be great, great resources for helping us to learn more about this topic. And secondly, we need to keep all this in perspective. Oftentimes, it's easy for our society to put homosexuality up on the pedestal and say, well, that's the worst of all. It's not the worst of all. It's one of many, many sins, and we all are guilty of sin. We all are in need of a Savior. And in fact, when you really think about it, there are a lot of sins, I think, that cause a lot more destruction and hurt in our society than homosexuality. I mean, even on more of the sexual or, or marital side of things, I think that divorces and pornography cause a lot more pain and destruction than homosexuality does. So we need to keep, keep all this in perspective, recognizing, you know what, what people need is a Savior and point them to that Savior. So we need to keep it in perspective and also to be respectful and humble. I mean, we have that question of why are Christians so mean to homosexuals? There are times that we need to apologize, even to homosexuals saying, you know what, I'm sorry that people have been so mean to you in the name of Christ, because that is not Christ-like. Now, we shouldn't water down the truth, but, but if people are mean about this topic or about other sin issues, odds are good what that means is they have forgotten the gospel. They have forgotten that they too are sinners and their only hope is found in Christ as their Savior. So we need to be very humble and respectful. And we also need to recognize that if people have a church or a Christian background and they're dealing with same-sex attraction, for them that's probably a source of significant shame. And so our respect and our humility as we dialogue with them can be a huge help. And speaking of dialogue, we need to engage in meaningful dialogue. 
Oftentimes Christians are very isolated from homosexuals. We kind of put up a wall there and don't want, we just want to pretend they aren't there. Or we want to pretend like we're in our little castle and we're launching mortars over the wall at them, trying to take some of them out or change things without us getting personally invested in it. That's not going to help anything. What we need to do is to engage in meaningful dialogue. Dialogue is a two-way communication. It probably does involve listening to people. If we know people who, who deal with same-sex attraction, get in a conversation with them. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. Listen to them. Listen to their stories. Listen to um, just, just what that is like for them. Listen to their perspectives on the church in, in, in relationship with their, with their sense of sexuality. Because it can help build trust and build a bridge for the gospel because we believe the gospel flows best over the bridge of relationships. We need to not label people so much as to see them as, as people, just as God sees them. And finally, we need to point people to Jesus. That needs to be our focus. Not, not, not so much what are we against as Christians, but who are we for? And we are for Jesus. So point people to Jesus because that is what all people need. I think of back when I was in college, a friend and I would oftentimes go out on campus and just initiate spiritual conversations with people that we met. It was, it was kind of out of our comfort zone a little bit, but it was also a really neat thing that opened up some cool opportunities. And one particular day, I remember in the student union, there was a table for an organization, the, uh, the, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender organization. So we thought, hey, let's go talk with them. Um, so we went over there, and there were several people there working at the table, and we ended up in this hour-long conversation with one of the leaders of this organization. We actually ended up sitting on the floor behind the table talking with him for an hour, and we were talking about Jesus. He had a bunch of questions about Jesus and about church, and so we were talking about these things, and we, my friend and I, we were so encouraged as we left that conversation. We could tell that we left um, him with a good taste in his mouth about Christianity, we feel like hopefully he took a couple steps closer to Christ during that day. And one of the other things that we were actually encouraged by is that through the course of the hour-long conversation, we never talked about homosexuality. Now, some of you are probably thinking, hey, you sold out. You should have nailed him on that. You should have told him he's a sinner and needs to repent. You know what? I promise you that he already knew Christian's view of homosexuality. What we need to do is point him to Christ and trust that as he grows towards Christ and as he commits his life to Christ prayerfully, that Christ will do a transforming work in his life. That is what we need to do. There's a story I read of a 17-year-old girl. She, she was active in her church's youth group, and she invited her gay friend to church. She'd been working on him for a long time. And listen to this account of what happened when, she, when he came to church with her. She wrote that the youth pastor knew I was going to bring him he, and even though his talk really had nothing to do with homosexuality, he still found a way to insert God created Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve into his comments. I was sitting there just dying. This happened more than once. My friend was at a point where he was interested in seeing what Jesus might offer, and the door was just slammed shut. What we need to do is introduce people to Jesus and trust that Jesus is going to take care of that transforming work in their hearts. You know, those little jabs, those little jokes, we, we may think they're funny, but I mean, you know from marriage, if you're married, those little jabs, they don't help anything at all. Same thing in our conversations with non-Christians. Those jabs don't help. And so what happens, even in, here at Freedom Church, what happens if a homosexual couple decides to come in here and, and sit through a church service, come here for several weeks in a row? What do we do? 
I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to greet them in the exact same way I greet any of you on a Sunday morning. I'm going to say thanks for coming. I'm going to get to know them, and I pray and hope that you do too. Because what they need is Jesus. Now, if they want to be divisive about it, I'm going to show them the door the same way I show the door to anyone else who wants to be divisive here in, in the church. But my prayer is that we will be welcoming to people because everyone needs the Savior and that we will be pointing them to Jesus. I want to close with Romans 6, 6.23, which is the hope for every single one of us. It says, For the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May we be faithful to point everyone that we meet, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of baggage, regardless of religious background, may we point everyone to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We are all sinful, and that sin separates us all from you, Lord. We pray that you will give us humility so that as we deal with these issues, that we will not be harsh or judgmental or condemning, but that we will be humble and gentle and gracious, recognizing that we too are in need of a Savior. We thank you for Christ, and we pray that you will work through us as individuals and as a church family to point those around us uh, to him, for he alone is our hope and our refuge and our Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen.